it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, April 26, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Really appreciate you listening every single weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Those three hours. Set them aside if you can. We always do appreciate that. If you can't listen live to the whole show, there is a podcast for that. It is free of charge. It is on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. GuyBensonShow.com. We are broadcasting live from McAllen, Texas, as we are here along the southern border with Operation Lone Star, which is this project of the Texas state government trying to do its best to stem the tide of this border crisis. And they're doing what they can, but they can only do so much. As we discussed yesterday on the show and we will discuss again here today, we were in Del Rio at Base Camp Alpha yesterday. We're at a makeshift studio here in McAllen today, and we have quite a lineup in store for you, starting later this hour with Byron York, Fox News contributor and also Washington Examiner correspondent. In the next hour, Lieutenant Chris Olivares will be here. He's with Operation Lone Star with the Texas Department of Public Safety. He will be here right in studio with me face-to-face. We'll talk about some of what I saw this morning. And I'll describe that here for you in just a moment. Katie Pavlich, my colleague at Fox News and at townhall.com, she's been with me on this trip. She will also be our guest, as she was yesterday. And toward the end of the program, to kick off our final hour, U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. We had Ted Cruz yesterday. We had the governor yesterday. Now the other U.S. senator will be on this show here today. So just absolutely packed here. And again, glad to have each of you with us. I actually tweeted a few photographs earlier on my Twitter account, at Guy P. Benson. I guess soon I will be one of the many millions of users in a business owned by Elon Musk. We'll have more on that with Byron York a little bit later on. But I used my platform to report on some of what we saw this morning here in the McAllen area in the Rio Grande Valley. And... This has been a really interesting trip because, as I relayed yesterday, we came in on Sunday. That night we did elite brush team nighttime operations. We witnessed some apprehensions and the use of drones to find people uh, who were well north of the border by that point and capturing them. And then sort of like the process that Texas is using to get them processed and charged under state law. Yesterday we then had a number of different opportunities to go down to the Rio Grande River itself in Del Rio and see uh, the base camp and a few other things. Yesterday afternoon, we got off the air here on the show, went straight to the airport in Del Rio and boarded this aircraft, which is owned by the state of Texas, which has an extremely advanced communication system on it, including a very powerful camera that has 
a lot of technological capability. And they were, just in a utilitarian sense, flying us from Del Rio to McAllen. So that was very helpful. We ended up not having to do the six-hour trek by car. So that shaved you know five hours off of that trip. They also were able to show us how they use this technology, how they harness it from you know 17,000 feet above the ground to help law enforcement, whether it's Border Patrol, whether it's Texas Department of Public Safety, whether it's, you know, local police departments, they use this aircraft in a lot of different ways. It's very versatile. And there was a pilot who was flying us, and uh, we had a few minutes of, I would say, rather extreme turbulence, so that was fun. Right after they got finished telling us how safe the plane was, it was like, now let's test that proposition. Everything was fine. And there was a guy in the back sort of working the controls, not the flying controls, but the technological controls, like working the camera, going through like a lot of the radio feeds that are encrypted so that the cartels, for example, can't just listen in on what U.S. officials or Texas officials are doing. So it was only about an hour-long flight, but so much information was packed into that flight uh, that was just fascinating. And then today we got up and got on the boats. So you've got U.S. Border Patrol. That's on the federal side. We saw a bunch of them on their boats in the river today. And then there's the Texas contingent as well, whether it's, you know, DPS and they can make arrests, whether it's, you know, military assets. I think we saw game wardens out there as well. I mean, there was a lot of different uh, personnel on the river, U.S. personnel on the river at the federal and state level. And in some respects, I would say that was reassuring to see – the presence here, and yet, as I'm about to tell you, it's not nearly enough. It's not nearly sufficient based on some other things that we saw. Just as we were leaving sort of like the the, the dock, there was a st- – I mean, it, it's also just sort of like Mexico's right there. Right At one point, there's this little park, like a little playground almost, which is in Mexican territory, and you could maybe throw a baseball into Mexico from land in the U.S. It's that close. And, I mean, you just get someone just jump in the water, swim. They're right there. And as we were passing that park and venturing out onto the river, and we went pretty far down there. I mean, we went, you know, probably half an hour, 40 minutes in that direction. Right near the very beginning of our journey, there was this speedboat that had just been abandoned. It looked like it was taking on water and partially sunk right near this dock and one of the officials told us you know, that that boat was suspected of trafficking drugs and there were you know US authorities on its tail and they just sort of like pulled up almost just like onto land like a beached whale and scattered and just left the boat there so we saw the remain you know the remains of that boat which was sort of again partially submerged and it's like oh yeah that's just something that just happened the other day I think that might have been on Sunday that that happened. It's a sort of uh, one of many wow moments this morning. One thing that was very interesting to me, and I'm going to get to the the really disturbing part here in a second, but just to sort of paint the picture for you with words, there were times because we're on this powerful boat, and it is whipping. I mean, we were we were flying down the roads the other night at 105 or 110. I don't know how fast this boat was going on the river, but it was very fast. And there are gigantic guns. I think four of them attached to this vessel. Huge guns with big, 
you know, ammunition is like, okay, this is pretty serious. A lot of this is just deterrence. I don't know the last time those guns were actually, you know, fired live ammunition for whatever reason. But it's a pretty intimidating sight. You've got guys and their fatigues and all of that. It's like not a group to be trifled with on this boat. And then, of course, there's, you know, me. I am to be trifled with. I think I'm not going to scare anyone in my Brooks Brothers shirt that I was wearing on the boat. But there were moments where the breeze is in your face. And we got a little bit of rain, but for the most part, it was nice. And the sun broke through a number of times. And if you just sort of closed your eyes for a moment or even opened your eyes and just didn't look in your peripheral vision and see all these guys with huge guns, you could just be on an absolutely gorgeous river or a lake somewhere. I mean, it was stunningly beautiful parts of this river, absolutely beautiful terrain. And, you know, the wind and the sun, and it it feels like you could just be enjoying sort of a summer afternoon. But this was a Tuesday, and we were working, and they were working. At one point, we saw a car that was suspected to be scouts for the cartels and for the human traffickers being like, okay, because they were driving fast on the Mexican side, and they sort of slowed down to take a look at what we were up to and then sped off. They're like, we think those are probably scouts. And it's just this sort of fascinating juxtaposition where you're in, in some ways, this idyllic setting where it almost feels like you're on vacation. And then you just open your eyes a little wider and pay a little bit more attention, and then you know the context, and that comes flooding back of where you are, and everything feels profoundly different. That was very strange to me. So at one point, we get to one of these offloading points that Border Patrol and the Operation Lone Star guys all know quite well And I can't underscore enough how many of these there are. So we were in one small part, one small sector of the Rio Grande Valley and one small part of the river. I mean, even though we did half an hour front, you know, one way and then back another half an hour, that's just a tiny, teeny fraction of this very long river and an even longer border, of course, spanning hundreds and hundreds of miles. We barely scratched the surface on the boat today. And yet, there were so many examples of places where the migrants, on a very regular basis, come ashore, often using little rafts. And, you know, I'm not perfect at estimating, but a lot of the time, in terms of the river that we were on or the part of the river that we were on today, it's like maybe a football field, like maybe 100 yards from one side to the other. That's U.S., that's Mexico. They have these little rafts. They come across. And they actually had us stop. The Operation Lone Star guys brought the boat all the way up to shore and tied up and had us jump off the boat onto the land where a lot of these migrants get into the United States. And as we were approaching, you could see just a a thick layer of garbage on the ground. And you're trying to figure out what is all this garbage. You can see water bottles and other things but when you get closer and you're actually, you know, boots on the ground yourself, this is on the U.S. side, of course, there were, I would estimate, thousands of plastic wristbands. Like, think about if you've gone to a hospital, maybe, or like even a summer camp. You know those plastic wristbands that have the little kind of buttons that you push? They're not even the ones that you would get at a concert where there's an adhesive and it sticks to your arm hair, and it hurts, this was like the next level up, more permanent than that. And there 
are numbers. There, there are different colors. There are different brands. There are different numbers. And there are thousands of these bracelets all over the ground, just on shore on the U.S. side on the Rio Grande. And they explained these are bracelets worn by the illegal immigrants to identify them to the human smugglers, all run by the cartels, so that you can actually sort of confirm that you've paid your money. Right, So whoever's in control of your group, your coyote, whatever you want to call it, they're checking people's wristbands to make sure these people are paid up so they can get smuggled then into the United States. And, I mean, there was one that was especially sad. And, again, none of this is new intellectually for me, but a lot of this is new viscerally for me. One of the officials that we were with picked up one of the thousands off the ground just in this one location, and there were countless locations. You just think about the math that just adds up and up and up every single day down here. And he picked up one of these wristbands, and it had been, you know, it had been secured very, very small. It was a very small loop. He's like, this is clearly a small child's wristband. And sure enough, you can see paraphernalia related to young kids and babies. There was a tiny little shoe of a toddler that had just been abandoned, like a little croc-type shoe, just sitting there. What else did we find? And I posted some of the photos of this. Guy P. Benson on Twitter. This was earlier. There were identification cards. Like there's a woman. This is her voting card. Her voter ID with her photograph on it from Mexico. She had just discarded it once she got to America. Gone. There was currency. Like there's Honduran money printed by the government of Honduras just sitting there on the ground. We saw COVID test results scattered around. I mean, almost like you name it, all sorts of articles of clothing. But the the most uh, the the thing that sticks out to me, I would say the most, the most memorable visual for me, was the thousands and thousands of wristbands, because there is no way you can look at that scene and have the people who are here who deal with this every day explain what these wristbands are for, what the purpose is and not instantly understand how dangerous this is. This is not just an example of, you know, like a family that walks and walks and walks and lucks their way to this location and then swims across looking for a better life. These are people that are paying money, enriching drug cartels, who most of these folks, by the way, with the wristbands, they want to cut them off, walk up the, up the embankment, basically, walk a, a mile or two and get caught. They want to get caught by Border Patrol. They want to get processed and they want to be released into the United States, which they are by the hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's just a the, the incentives are so shockingly terrible just to see them up close and personal, to see the evidence of it left behind. And it, this was not like really old and they were partially obscured or buried under, you know, dirt or anything like that. They're just out in the open. It's like they could have been from last night, could have been from early this morning. They were fresh. And the cartels are making a fortune off of this stuff. And they're making sure everyone's paying and it's organized. Talk about organized crime. This is organized crime by the drug cartels in Mexico. They are the ones responsible for this. They're getting paid a ton. There was one guy we we're with. In fact, we're going to talk to the lieutenant later here on the show. He said 
the cartels last year made an estimated hundred million U.S. dollars a week from this. Forget the drugs for a second. A hundred million dollars per week smuggling people. And by the way, when they're smuggling people who want to get caught, there's a bunch of other people, a lower number, who don't want to get caught, who are criminals, who are trafficking drugs, who might be, you know, dangerous people, and they'll pay extra, or they're they're working for the cartels, they'll be spirited into the country in more sophisticated ways to then become that group of known or unknown gotaways. And the more time our officials here are focused on the former group, people who want to get caught and released into the country, the less resources they have to deal with the latter group, and that's the more scary, dangerous population there. And, I mean, just the evidence of it was literally everywhere today on the river. One more thought on this when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show from McAllen, Texas, embedded with Operation Lone Star. Don't go anywhere. Guy Benson will be right back. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson from McAllen, Texas. It's the Guy Benson Show. Now, I was just describing in the opening monologue my day or at least morning out on the Rio Grande River with Katie Pavlich and we were there with the Marine Tactical Unit with the Department of Public Safety here in the state of Texas and I was thinking several times about something that Jen Psaki at the White House said yesterday here's part of it cut 17. The former president invested billions of dollars in a border wall that was never going to work or be effective. The wall was never going to work she said. And this was the line at the time as well. Walls don't work is the talking point. Well, today we saw federal border wall constructed under Trump. We saw state border fencing and wall as well. And at one point out on the boat, there was some fencing on the U.S. side. And we said, is that state? Is that federal? Who put that up? They said, that's actually private wall. That was privately financed wall that went up. I think it's ridiculous, disgraceful almost, that that has to happen. I said, how well has that worked? And the officials with us said, well, it's a huge deterrent. The migrants go and the cartels take them elsewhere. In that area, it's cut down traffic around 90%. that'd be an A- in the school. Sounds like walls might work, Jen. We'll be back with Byron York next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's Benson at the border on this Tuesday here from McAllen, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast, free every single day. It's on demand 
24-7 shortly after the show ends, just after 6 p.m. Eastern time. With us now is Byron York, chief political correspondent at The Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, good to have you back. Hi, Guy. Good to be here. Well, as we were coming on the air yesterday, the news was breaking just ahead of our showtime that the board at Twitter had accepted unanimously Elon Musk's offer, $44 billion to buy the company, buy the social media platform, and take it private. And I know some people have reacted as if Elon Musk already right now owns Twitter and is like personally running it himself from his Death Star somewhere, which is uh, funny because the deal isn't even really done yet. This is going to take months with all the paperwork and the sign-offs and everything. But, I mean, this looks pretty close to a done deal that will be completed in a matter of, let's say, weeks to months. I don't like to overuse the term meltdown, but I don't know how else to describe what we've seen from many people on the left and in the press, and of course, in many cases, there's a lot of overlap there, in response to this development. I want to just play a few examples and get your reaction. This was earlier today on The View. Sonny Hostin, uh, she explored some brand new ground over at The View, talking about uh, racism and straight white men and free speech for them versus other people. I mean, stuff you never hear over there. Cut 27. On Twitter, it is predominantly straight white men. So when Elon Musk says, wow, this is about free speech, it seems to me that it's about free speech of straight white men. And so let them have it. Let them just go at it. I enjoy the block button on Twitter. Um, I think it has a real outsized influence in, in, in our world because politicians and celebrities are on it. Yeah, I agree with kind of the last part, but I don't know why you go the the identity route unless you have no other talking points ever, which seems to be the case over on that show a lot of the time. Meanwhile, at CNN, Brian Stelter, uh, he was very concerned about this becoming an out-of-control party with no rules. Cut 21. If you get invited to something where there are no rules, where there is total freedom uh, for, for everybody, do you actually want to go to that party? Or are you going to decide to stay home? And that's a question for Twitter users. Some Twitter users might love the idea that there's going to be absolutely no moderation and no rules at all. Others might not want to be anywhere near that. Am I, am I crazy, Matt? No, no, you're right. And what, what happens to the advertising? I mean, if there's no moderation or little moderation, do the right. advertisers stay away? What does that do to the, yeah. the business prospects for Twitter itself? Okay, so we've got The View. We've got CNN. I've got another one coming up, Byron. But first, just your reaction to those two. I mean, the first one is just sort of, you know, uh, I, I think, ridiculous on its face this is only free speech or predominantly free speech for straight white men um i i do not fit exactly into that category and i'm pretty excited about this twitter development and then the stelter thing there i mean byron unless i'm missing something is anyone talking about no moderation and no rules at all moving forward with twitter what is he talking about well, of course not. Of course they're not doing that. I think what both what what uh, joins both of the reactions you just played is that it illustrates the degree to which these people believed Twitter was their space, and now it's being taken away. And indeed, if you are a liberal and you do kind of like shutting down people who uh, disagree with you, Twitter was a pretty good place. And um, listen, I, I think conservatives should be cautious in their celebration 
about yeah, this I purchase agree. of Twitter. You know, M- Musk, I, I haven't studied him, but he's clearly a brilliant but eccentric individual. Uh, I think he does believe in uh, freedom of speech, but he's eccentric and he is unpredictable. And so I simply would not, you know, um, <clears throat> be – be happy if uh, you know completely happy if I were conservative looking at this. But what you're seeing now in the meltdown is simply an admission that, wait a minute, we thought we owned this place, and now it's being taken away from us. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I saw a number of people making some variant on this same point, which is you're not really seeing a bunch of progressives, quote unquote, panicking or freaking out. That with Elon Musk now owning Twitter, again, the man will have a massive team. He won't be running it himself. There will be rules of the road. Uh, you're not, it's not going to be like this Wild West total free-for-all. It might be something a little bit closer to what that used to be, which isn't necessarily a bad thing in my mind. But they aren't necessarily, it doesn't seem, worried that they're going to get censored or they're going to be put in Twitter jail or whatever, or their vantage point won't be well represented, they do seem to be pretty upset that other people that they hate will have those things happen to them less. I think that's sort of telling here, isn't it? Absolutely. And this clearly... I, I just uh, on my on my own pa- podcast I recorded an inter- interview with Seth Dillon, who is the CEO of the Babylon Bee. And you know the Babylon yep, Bee remains in Twitter jail as we speak, and will probably be so uh, un- until if the sale goes through, um, the the Bee is freed from Twitter jail um, <laughs> by Elon Musk. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that is a real that is a reality for uh, conservatives, and it's simply not uh, for liberals. And and one thing I would say is that, you know, of course, giant social media platforms have to um, curate, moderate their content. I mean, how many times have we seen an incident in which somebody walks into a store or a bar or a restaurant and shoots the place up, and then you find out he'd been saying he was going to do it on social media. Obviously, social media needs to keep track of that sort of thing. There are terrorist implications. There are all, all sorts of reasons where you have to Child abuse, sexual trafficking. Child abuse, exactly. Um, what we're talking about here is political speech that has been, in my view, unduly proscribed on Twitter on one side. And that's all we're talking about. I have to play this MSNBC clip. It's from yesterday, last evening. Ari Melber is the host, and I've seen the clip everywhere. I can scarcely believe that it's real, Byron, but it is. He was sort of envisioning, envisaging a terrible future in which Elon Musk, I guess, becomes super right-wing And all these terrible things might befall some liberals. I guess he is actually concerned, unlike a lot of them. He seems concerned about what could happen to his fellow progressives if right-wingers like Elon Musk have their way, although I'm I'm not convinced that Musk is a right-winger at all. In many ways, he's not. Um, he's, He's actually a man of the left in a lot of ways, but he believes in free speech. But this hypothetical scenario that Melber describes may sound strikingly and astoundingly familiar to a lot of conservatives cut 20 you own all of twitter or facebook or what have you you don't have to explain yourself 
You don't even have to be transparent. You could secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates, all of its nominees, or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else. And the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech, philosophically clear, open-minded helper. Byron, that what he just described is actually not hypothetical at all. It's exactly, precisely what has been happening on the right or to the right in some of these cases, on some of these platforms. But it's like Ari Melber and some of his friends don't know that, don't care, can't possibly imagine it. And now they're worried that these terrible things might occur because the terrible things might be occurring, and there's no evidence that they would, but to their side. I mean, I, the lack of self-awareness in that clip to me is breathtaking. I've watched the clip a couple of times, and we should say that Ari Melber says this with a completely straight face. Um, as if, as you mentioned, this is not precisely what Twitter is doing from the other side right now as we speak. And, uh, you know, nobody, you know, you listen to the Brian Stelter conversation, listen to the others. They haven't talked about things like the New York Post, which is the biggest single exhibit for uh, Twitter bias ever, meaning the story, the Hunter Biden laptop story that the New York Post published in October of 2020, in the last weeks of the campaign, in which Twitter shut it down. It locked down the New York Post Twitter account until it took down the post for that story and um, refused to let people, would not let people share it, uh, either publicly or privately with each other. It was a clearly partisan political move at a critical well, and in Melbourne and Melbourne in the clips is like oh and they might do this thing they, they might sort of throttle some of this <laughs> information right, and might. then and then it would change after the election I'm like yes yes this literally just happened Byron just describe what it was he said oh they might ban candidates from one side well gosh I I almost feel like that has happened is there a prominent politician from one political party uh, that has been Banned from Twitter. Just refresh my memory, Byron. I'm I'm scratching I'm scratching my head, but I, there's a former president. I'm thinking his name is Trump. I think so. That comes to mind. So the, listen, I don't want these things to happen on a new Twitter. I don't want these things to happen in the opposite direction. Okay, I don't want that to. I don't want this to continue. The, the idea is to stop this. Uh, it's not to 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 have now Republicans be able to cancel some Democrats. The idea is to stop this, and and Musk does give some hope uh, that he's inclined to do that. All right, Byron. So let's just pivot here in the conversation because it's fun to point and laugh at some of the preposterous histrionics that we're seeing on the left, and it really has been a festival on Twitter for the last, you know, 48 hours. And I can understand sort of the uh, the enjoyment that some conservatives might be deriving from the whole situation. I think there's a German word for it, <laughs> uh, schadenfreude. But, again, I think it's a little early to celebrate too heartily because we don't know what the new regime at Twitter will actually 
look like in practice, how different it will be. I think there will definitely be some changes. And Musk has put out a few statements, like this little short manifesto, broad strokes of what he would like to see. He wants to crack down on the bots and make sure that you've got more actual you know, human beings, not fake accounts. That's fine. He, he goes through a number of different, maybe some new features. People are wondering about an edit button, for example. Could that be coming? What do you think... They ought to do if if you were advising. I know you wrote about this, actually, at the Washington Examiner. If you were advising Musk and and the new Twitter team, because I imagine they're going to get a lot of new management very soon if the deal goes through. uh, What do you think some best practices might be in terms of steps to make sure that some of the problems in the past aren't repeated and then keep what is working and changing what isn't working? I mean, what would you recommend? Well, I'm not an expert on algorithms, but uh, anywhere close. But clearly they need to make their process more transparent, that if they do for some reason strike some um, part of speech, they they say precisely uh, why they did it. What I wrote today is that at the same time they're reforming their methods, they need to conduct an audit of all the times in the past few years that Twitter has um, uh, frozen accounts, has suspended people, has kicked them off yes. the platform, and has, has restricted the distribution of their tweets. Uh, we need to know about this because even in the past, after the Hunter Biden episode that we discussed, Twitter, um, Jack Dorsey, who was at the time CEO, did say, conceded that Twitter had made a mistake, but never said exactly how it happened. This place is entirely opaque. And then the last thing I think they need to do is to throw out standards like uh, hateful, um, in which, which are completely judge, judgment terms uh, and which <clears throat> can be used to justify absolutely anything. Yep, I think that that's completely fair. I think that so much of this stuff was arbitrary. I actually saw someone posted a graphic of these tech companies and the percentage of the political donations, which party they went to. And in the last election, the number was, I believe, if memory serves, 98.7% of Twitter employee political contributions went to the Democrats. And I don't think that you can have actually a robust free speech platform when your company is populated with partisans that hardcore, that overwhelmingly. So I think maybe some ideological diversity that looks like America, our beautiful kaleidoscope that they always talk about, maybe they can actually do something about that when they're hiring, and especially at the you know upper echelons at Twitter, the people making decisions. And I think the word that you just used, Byron, transparency, is so important, both backward-looking, the audit that you're talking about, but also moving forward, explain what the rules are, make the rules crystal clear, and apply them evenly in a transparent way. If that's, and I might not love every single rule or regulation that you have on your platform, but as long as they are clearly stated, easily understandable, and enforced even handedly, that's basically like the top touchstone for me moving forward. I'll give you the last word, Byron. Well, I agree with all of that. Those are things that Musk needs to do. But the one thing we have not discussed and you you touched on in your discussion of the political contributions of their employees, and that is Musk is likely to face fierce 
internal resistance to doing this. We've already seen the yep. beginnings of it. Uh, people trying this. It, it's kind of like some of the executive branch did when Donald Trump took over, except it's going to probably be more fierce. Uh, he'll have uh, uh, employees perhaps trying to sabotage what he is doing, going public. I'm sure we'll see lots of Elon Musk hit pieces in the near future. Oh, yeah. Uh, alleging oh, yeah. that he is this or that. And so uh, he has to be kind of prepared for all of that and able yeah. to keep his eye on where he wants to go. Gird the loins. The difference is he'll be king of that castle, right? If it's a private company that he owns. Uh, they can they can resist all they want. They might resist their way right out the door uh, in terms of you know, firing. So uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch as the whole thing goes down. Still a lot of the logistics to get through before it becomes a reality, but it's looking pretty real from where we sit right now. Byron York of the Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor here on the Guy Benson Show. Byron, always appreciate it. Thank you, Guy. Enjoyed it. And we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show from McAllen, Texas. This broke from the Associated Press about an hour ago. Three out of every four American children have been infected with COVID over the course of this pandemic. Three out of four. That's according to the CDC and their new estimate. That is very much in the ballpark of what we were told forever was herd immunity. And this is one of the last excuses that we've had about masking. Oh, we've got to keep these kids wearing masks because they can't get the vaccine yet. Well, three out of four of them have had the disease already. That's natural immunity. That's better than the vaccine, according to a lot of the experts. The final excuses are crumbling. The death rate and the hospitalization rate among children in this country has been vanishingly small for the entire pandemic and we've known this for well over a year and a half some people refuse to see it here's yet another data point masks off of these kids period schools open period it's the science and it's the right thing to do another hour of the guy benson show from the border coming up From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour underway on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And around the clock at GuyBensonShow.com on our free podcast, which we always recommend. That's free of charge every day. We are broadcasting from McAllen, Texas. We are embedded yesterday and today here on the show with Operation Lone Star in the state of Texas. We're sort of at a makeshift studio here in the Rio Grande Valley, and we're focusing on border issues, but not exclusively. We're going to get back to the border here in just a second. First, a Fox News alert. The Dow closing the day way down. It got beaten up today. The Dow down 809 points at the close, finishing for the day at 33,240. Well, I opened the show talking about our trip out on the boat with the Marine Tactical Unit. 
at the Department of Public Safety here in Texas. And one of the gentlemen who was on the boat with us and giving us some of the color commentary as we were out there on the river is my next guest. And he's here with me here at the studio down in McAllen, Lieutenant Chris Oliveras of the Department of Public Safety, which I just mentioned a moment ago here in Texas, and he is attached to Operation Lone Star. It's great to see you, Lieutenant. Again, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Guy. Thank you for having me on. Let's just start with this big picture question about your CV, your resume in this area, law enforcement, where you've been at least dealing with border security issues tangentially or directly. How long has that career arc been so far? How long have you been dealing with these issues down here? Right. So I've lived along the border my entire life. Um, I've served in different capacities as a law enforcement officer with 20 plus years of law enforcement as a city police officer. And then now as a state police officer with the Texas Department of Public Safety. So I've seen the, the changes throughout the years, the different administrations, the different governors. But what we're seeing right now, what we saw even since last year, is something I've never seen before in my entire career as a law enforcement officer in terms of the surge of illegal immigrants that are coming across the criminals, the drugs that are pouring into the country. It's something that I've never seen um, in all my years of law enforcement. So more than two decades, you've never seen it like this. That's correct. We have had people, and I made this observation on the air yesterday, people are unsolicited officials in Texas coming up to me, coming up to Katie Pavlich as we're here saying, we've never seen it this bad, and it's already getting worse ahead of this Title 42 change next month. And once that change does happen, if it does, because I saw a judge might be getting involved here. I know that Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, says they're going to try to force a vote here uh, in the next couple weeks in the Senate somehow by attaching it on a a, a must, you know, one of the much, what do they call the must pass bills uh, in D.C. But if that change does happen, there are people seemingly at every level of law enforcement who are extremely concerned about the practical implications of what that would look like on the ground here. And it's like it's almost like there's a level of desperation that they want anyone who will listen to know that. Why? What is fueling that desperation besides, you know, just the obvious that people who might be following this on a cursory level, not living in Texas, not living near near the border. What's the urgency here? Well, the urgency, and I can speak on that because of my experience, and I see it firsthand by being out there in the field with our men and women, not only DPS, but also working with our U.S. Border Patrol agents, our Texas National Guardsmen, and I see it firsthand, and I've seen it firsthand throughout my years as you know, in law enforcement. The urgency is that what we're seeing right now is historic. The numbers that we're seeing right now, not, now we're, not, we're not just talking about families and children that are coming across, but the criminals, the suspected terrorists, the drugs that are pouring in last year, Last fiscal year, over 100,000 Americans were killed because of fentanyl. We had never seen fentanyl before in prior years. And now we're starting to see this deadly drug make, it, make its way you know, across our borders into the states. That's why I always say that this is not only a Texas problem. This affects the entire country because these criminals, these immigrants that are coming across, these drugs, these suspected terrorists that are coming across are not staying in Texas. They're trying to make it further into the interior. And if it wasn't for our men and women from DPS and Texas the Military Department, who knows how much more – Criminals will be getting by. How much more drugs we're getting by? Suspected terrorists getting by because Border Patrol is just so overwhelmed right now because of the constant processing that they're having to deal with day in and day out. We played this clip earlier in the show, and a play. It's very quick. This was yesterday at the White House. Jen Psaki, who's the spokeswoman there, she said a lot of things that we've objected to on this show. Uh, we did so earlier. We'll do so again later. But this is a specific claim. <clears throat> Let's play cut 17. This was Saki yesterday. The former president invested billions of dollars in a border wall that was never going to work or be effective. 
talking about the Trump administration investing in a border wall that she said was never going to work, was never going to be successful. I'm not naive. I understand that there's no silver bullet where you fix this entire problem in one fell swoop. There will always be people wanting to come to this country for understandable good reasons, even if they don't have a right to be here, and also for much worse reasons. But we've heard this, and now it's reiterated just yesterday from the White House podium, paraphrasing, walls don't work. And out on the boat today, talking to a military guy at dinner last night, the facts, the evidence, suggest exactly the opposite. That's what I'm hearing. Right. What can you share with us some insights in terms of the effectiveness of physical barriers, you know, from chain link fence all the way up to the huge, what they call right. down here, the Trump wall, exactly. 30 feet in the air? Right. So you're right on point. And I can tell you that those that have not, those are, that are making those inaccurate statements about barriers that do not work, well, first of all, they need to get to the border and visit with the men and women that are on those front lines that can tell them firsthand that do that barriers, fencing walls do work. It does help them in their job. And we've seen it firsthand. You got to see it firsthand by visiting the border as well. So when you have a barrier in place, whether it be a chain link fence, a wall, it helps divert some of that criminal activity to other areas where we can plug in those gaps, either by having a National Guard soldier on, on point or even technology, having cameras. But walls are very vital to border security and border patrol agents can tell you that they've been saying that for numerous years and that's why governor abbott last year stepped in because government the federal government failed to to count they've canceled those border wall contracts and Mm -hmm. that's why he stepped in took that initiative and took unprecedented action by actually building the first ever texas border wall and in in addition to that also having other barriers in place chain link fencing and also concertina wire which is that sea wire that you saw along the river um, this morning so we're putting those barriers in place but again one thing to keep in mind though too is that we're only able to put these barriers and this this wall on property privately owned property that's not owned by the federal government because of course the federal government does not want any barriers or any infrastructure on their property so it goes to show you what their intentions are and not having to do not dealing with this problem and also not helping our agents and our first responders on the front lines in the previous administration, they were trying to get funding and secured some to build the wall. When the change happened last January, you actually had the Biden administration paying people not to build the wall. Like the right. contracts were signed, but they said, we're going to spend all this taxpayer money at the federal level. It's been committed, but you're not going to build the wall. Exactly. And, and, and it's based on this, this fiction, this fanciful fiction that the walls couldn't possibly help. They're a failure. They don't work. And... Uh, Again, last night at dinner, we were having sort of this free-flowing conversation. You weren't there, but there were some military guys. They were saying, look at the areas, for example, the Rio Grande Valley, Mm -hmm. right where we are now, where there has been a wall. And look at the success there compared to other places where the flow is much more out of control. I mean, it's just common sense. If you see a wall in front of you, there's the deterrent effect. Some people say, you know what? Forget it. I'm not doing it, or at least not here. Right. Then there's the delay effect where they're going to try, but there's a, a greater likelihood of being apprehended and spotted. Right. right? There's a number of different ways right. that walls can help you and your whole team do their job better. I, I just I can't wrap my brain around why anyone would try to make the argument, a political argument otherwise, given the fact that I think just most normal Americans understand that, of course, walls work at keeping people out of things because they experience that in their personal lives every single day. They do, and it's common sense that a barrier does work. Just like anybody that would put up a barrier or a fence around their property, their own home, 
is done for a reason, right? You want to try to keep people out, people that shouldn't be on your property. But when we talk about border security, having a wall, infrastructure in place, it helps our resources. It helps our men and women that are on those front lines. It, it diverts that traffic, that activity to other areas where we can plug in more uh, technology or infrastructure, manpower, as opposed to having a wide open border with no infrastructure. How exhausted are you guys here on the Texas side? Because we've spoken with sources and also on the air people who have said on the Border Patrol, on the Fed level, right. right, the feds, they are completely overrun and overwhelmed. So many of their personnel are being diverted just to, you know, do processing and, you know, filling out paperwork. So they're unable to patrol a lot of the border. They're lar- the swaths of the border unpatrolled by the federal government and uh, CBP. You guys are trying to pick up a lot of that slack. What kind of toll is that taking? I feel like it's got to be harder than ever. Right. And it is. It's challenging. Don't get me wrong. But what I can say about Border Patrol, it's demoralizing for them when they don't have the support from the federal government, from their leadership. What's unique about Texas and what we are doing as far as Texas DPS or Texas National Guard is that we have the support. Right. We have the the exact opposite. Right. Exact opposite. We have the support from the governor, from our Texas legislatures, all the way down. We have the support from our leadership. And I think that motivates and it motivates our guys and have that dedication to be out on that field and to do this job because they know what the circumstances are. They know that if they're not out there, um, that more criminal activity is going to come across, more drugs are going to come across. So they're serving a purpose by being out there. And I get it's all in part because of the leadership that we have and the support that we have when it comes to funding, when it comes to equipment, the manpower. We're able to have all those resources in place because, of course, Border Patrol right now, they're just so tied up with the with the concept processing. Lieutenant, let me ask you this, because in the opening of the show today, first segment, I described the boat ride that we were right. both on and going on land and seeing all those wristbands. And I'd seen that before, like it dramatized in maybe a few shows or movies. It hadn't really sunk in what that really meant. And then seeing thousands of them all over the ground in just this one spot out of countless spots all along this river – uh, and, and along the border, too, where there isn't a river, I mean, it, it's, it was on some level shocking to me, even though I knew in my brain what was going on, to actually see it, it, it felt more affecting to right. me. And the other part of this, and you were helping to explain this, and you were having a conversation with Katie Pavlich, who's joining us later this hour. I, and I'll, I'll just, like, openly admit this and confess this. I, of course, understood that, you know, Mexico has a huge problem with the drug cartels. You know, some people say, you know, they, they effectively run a lot of the country, right. which is sort of a scary thing. And, of course, that's going to have some impact on the border crisis. You're going to have some cartel-tied people trying to get in and smuggle drugs. That, I, I got that. I think I was, even as someone who writes and reads a lot about this, naive about the extent to which the cartels absolutely dominate and control the other side of this border, they the do. Mexican side of this border, and how you are not, in almost all circumstances, you are not crossing from Mexico into the United States without the permission of a compensated Mexican drug cartel. I did not fully understand that right. until today. Talk more about that, because I think some people might view it or think of it as like, oh, it's just a it's a fear tactic. It's a scare thing. It's like, oh, the scary cartels, let's mention them a lot right. to make the problem seem worse than it is. That's not true, right? That is that is a very scary reality. It is. It, it yeah. is a reality. And, and it's one thing to see you know, photos and videos on social media or even on the news, but when you actually see it firsthand, what you saw this morning, it really puts it in perspective what you're actually – what we're having to encounter – 
and how these Mexican cartels, these smuggling organizations are very coordinated in their efforts and how they smuggle these people, these immigrants across the river. As you mentioned, no one's going to get across, no one's going to cross that river or any part from Mexico into the United States unless they pay a fee. And we're talking anywhere from two to $3,000 up to $50,000, depending on what country you're coming from. And also we talk about those high value, those special interest immigrants that are coming across. They pay a much higher fee uh, to get across Explain that river. Explain high value. What's that? So we're talking about suspected, even suspected terrorists that are coming across from other countries that they're trying to make it make their way into the interior. Uh, people from China, we've come across those individuals as well. So those are paying so, a higher fee to get into the United States. So do the cartels? I mean, it's just it's it's remarkable how sophisticated this is. It is the cartels. Someone will come to them and say, "I want to go to America," and they have this whole system set up where they are going to evaluate on their end the risk level of that person. And if that person in their mind is a higher risk to them to try to get them into the country, and it's you know it's not just a family from Honduras, it's right. someone else, right. a convicted felon or someone from a sensitive country, they are going to have like a sliding scale, price scale basically, where they're saying, okay, you're tougher for these reasons, we're gonna charge you more. Yes, like that's, that's that, happening that, every day. That is correct, that is correct. And it's not, it, it doesn't stop there also. Once they make it to the river, and we're, we're talking about the single adults, the ones that are trying to make it further into, into the interior, the ones that are in stash houses, the ones that get smuggled in cars and, and trucks. Uh, those, they pay a separate fee as well. So they pay a fee once they cross the river. Now they're trying to get to a certain destination, whether it be in Texas or out of Texas. they got to pay a separate fee now to a different organization who has ties to the Mexican cartels as well, depending on how they're going to be smuggled. Are they going to be smuggled in a car? a truck or they're going to have to traverse through a ranch so there's different fees associated with that so it's very coordinated uh, when these when it comes to these smuggling organizations and i mentioned earlier that these organizations last year with the intel that we received from our federal partners and also our international partners in mexico they're making well over 100 million dollars a week just on human smuggling so it's a multi-billion dollar trade and now the numbers this year have increased you know significantly compared to last year 1.2 million encounters and then over 300,000 known gotaways so Put that in perspective and goes to show you how much more these organizations are making, how much more profitable it is for them, yeah, I mean, and the how numbers, it continues to enrich them as well. The numbers were astonishing, uh, astonishing last year. They are going to be worse this year for sure. Title 42 goes away. All bets are off. I mean, the, the thing's just going to explode. And uh, I was joking, and I actually tweeted about this. When you said that $100 million a week, Katie and I both thought we misheard you. And Katie's right. like, a month? You're like, no, no, a right. week. That's a week. And that was last year. So that's why when we talk about, you know, we're, we're so focused on the humanitarian part of this, of this crisis, right, the children, the families coming across. But yet we're not shifting the focus on these criminal organizations who are profiting off of this current crisis right now. And because of these – And where do you think that money goes? Right, exactly. Guns, drugs, all this other exactly. stuff too. So because of these lax border policies and the fact that we have an open border right now because of the federal government because they're not taking any action, these cartels are becoming even more powerful. And they're essentially running the, the country right now in Mexico and also whatever crosses that border. They are in control right now. Lieutenant Chris Oliveira is our guest, Operation Lone Star here in Texas. And it's the Department of Public Safety down here doing what they can. And you can hear in his voice, I can see in his face, I mean, there is real concern here. Yep. And as you said, it's not just a Texas issue. This right. is an America issue. No matter where you're listening to this show right now, what's happening at this border right here steps away from us. It affects communities all across the country. Absolutely. Lieutenant, it's great to see you. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. The Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Benson at the border on the Guy Benson Show. McAllen, Texas today. Operation Lone Star here. 
in the Lone Star State. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Still to come on today's show, Katie Pavlich. She is uh, in the on-deck circle right now, ready to step up to the plate. Coming up next, and then in our next hour, kicking off the 5 p.m. Eastern hour, it will be U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican, here from Texas as well. I do want to quickly take this opportunity to brag on some of my colleagues at Fox News. The ratings just came in for the month of April, at least up until this point. And they said, like, there's that key demo that they look at, the demographics, 25 to 54-year-old viewers. Fox News is up 16% over last April. So plus 16% at Fox. Our competition, CNN, down 35%. MSNBC down 46%. But, uh, you know, they can do whatever they want to do over at those networks. We're just grateful to all of you. If you're a Fox viewer, thank you for watching. I hope you continue to watch and keep listening to this show as well as part of the Fox News family. We truly, truly appreciate it. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back on the Guy Benson Show from McAllen, Texas on this Tuesday, heading back to D.C. tomorrow. Thanks so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free, on demand, every day. GuyBensonShow.com. And my colleague, twice over, at TownHall.com and Fox News, is Katie Pavlich. She joined us yesterday because we're here on this border trip together with Operation Lone Star here in Texas. And before she takes off for the airport... We were going to have another conversation. Katie, we talked yesterday on the show about, and I was in Del Rio, about some of the things that we had been seeing. Before we get into what we saw earlier today, this morning, I just want to get your reaction because we were talking a little bit about the White House and the administration yesterday. We had played the audio earlier in the program, Jen Psaki reacting to the drowning of a Texas National Guard soldier. I know you're hot on this and you want to talk a bit more about it. A lot of people that we've been embedded with are very unhappy with the way the White House is sort of buck-passing this thing off to Texas like it's really their fault or Greg Abbott's fault. You, I think, have a dissenting opinion from uh, what we heard from Jen Psaki. Yeah, so the, first of all, the White House didn't make any official statement about the drowning uh, at all for four days in, uh, even after they found the body of Bishop Evans, who was a National Guard soldier who died uh, while he was trying to save two men who turned out to be part of a drug smuggling operation. They were criminals. Uh, They never released an official statement from the White House or the president acknowledging this soldier's sacrifice and the work that he's done. On Monday, the White House was then asked about it through Jen Psaki at the press briefing, and she started her answer. She was asked by Fox News uh, correspondent Jackie Heinrich. She started her answer by saying, thank you so much, Jackie, for the opportunity to respond to this situation. The White House has the largest uh, microphone in the entire world. The The press department certainly doesn't need uh, a reporter to prompt them to, to they put address out statements op- all the time to address an opportunity to have an opportunity to address an issue. So if they had not been asked about this by Fox News, I doubt they would have been putting out any kind of statement about it at all. And then she proceeded to say that uh, this was essentially the result of uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott deploying the National Guard. Uh, and that is his jurisdiction, his fault. So when, she checked She checked the box about, oh, of course we mourn the loss. Right. right? She so she's said, sort of, of course like, we do, but it was day four. Right. Uh, it very was day four. perfunctory, very delayed. And before we get to the blame shifting, mm-hmm. I think it's important to once again underscore 
your point and then another point that I made yesterday, this is the White House. They don't need to wait for Jackie Heinrich or Peter Ducey or anyone to ask them a question. If they feel strongly about something, they will come out and say it through a press release, from the podium, from the president's mouth, on social media. They have all sorts of available avenues for this sort of thing. Obviously, this is like 101 stuff. This president, Joe Biden, within hours of the whipping, quote-unquote, scandal, which was neither a scandal nor did it involve whipping, but they decided that it was both of those things. So they were out there. I mean, anyone who would listen to them, right? Biden said it. Harris said it. Mayorkas initially told the truth and changed his story to fit the party line. They were out there accusing Border Patrol agents on the federal side in their own administration, right, under the executive branch of crimes, Mm -hmm. of whipping defenseless, innocent migrants. Right. That was in Del Rio, where we were yesterday, six months ago. That wasn't true. That was a smear. But they spread the smear halfway around the world over and over again and then sort of quietly disposed of it months later. Here's an American soldier Mm -hmm. who was killed in the line of duty, died by drowning while he was saving successfully two alleged drug smugglers. Right. And the president of the United States, who you've pointed out, he has a certain phrase at the end of every speech that he gives on the teleprompters. He says, may God protect our troops. Here's one of those troops dead in the Rio Grande River. And the president still, as of right now, himself has said not one word about it. Right. So the the president has not released an official statement. Uh, The White House says that they haven't released any details this about him getting in touch with the family. No, this is like President Empathy. Right. He's Where supposed is to he? be the guy who's, you know, back to norms and the guy that people can depend on to have a heart and all that. But, you know, they maybe they feel like they can't comment on it because it's a direct reflection of the failure of their policies at the border. And now it's affected uh, the National Guard in this way. But going back to what Jen Psaki was saying about who's responsible here. Right. She's now blaming Texas Governor Greg, Greg Abbott for deploying the National Guard to the border. But as we saw, the National Guard would not have to be at the border. The federal government would do their job. As we talked about yesterday, the idea that Texas can set up these amount, this amount of resources to go after this problem, building fences, putting up concertina wire, putting up razor wire, patrolling the Rio Grande, um, doing all this stuff to make sure that Texas itself, the people here, have some you know, defense against this onslaught of illegal immigration and cartel activity, but also protecting the rest of the country because the federal government's not doing their job. So this soldier died on a mission that shouldn't even have to be going on as a result of the federal government refusing to do its job and the president having a far left open borders policy, which we've seen, you know, every single time we've gone out for throughout the last four years. It just hours. seems so callous with President Empathy, MIA on this, and his spokeswoman, soon to be our competitor in cable news, basically saying, well, of course, we're very sad, but I'll just refer you to the people who really did this, the governor of Texas, because Texas had him down there. This was under Texas orders. This was not the federal government. It's like if that's the game they want to play, that Specialist Evans wouldn't have been there if not for the state of Texas deploying him there, which is true. The state of Texas would not be deploying anyone there if not for what? And you already answered that question. And it's so – this is the thing, Katie. I was disgusted by it. I thought it was a gross way to respond. I'm not as angry about it as I would be for this reason. It's not going to work. Yeah. It is – This messaging strategy is as failed as the policy itself. And for them to say, oh, well, here's a guy saving drowning people in the river who turn out to be drug smugglers, to make that really the state of Texas's fault 
when the federal government's out there pounding their chest that they have the jurisdiction on immigration yeah. and trying to smack down states whenever they try to do anything. The American people collectively, we do a lot of stupid things and have stupid arguments in this country, but the American electorate ultimately is pretty smart. And I think in Texas you might say that dog won't hunt. Like yeah. it's such an insulting talking point that I think it actually – hurts them politically so i'm almost like encouraging them to keep it up yeah i think it it hurts them politically it has hurt them politically you have a number of democrats who are afraid that they're going to lose their seats in the senate now coming out and saying they want to keep title 42 i mean this has not been a good move for them and it's interesting to watch the white house continue to think that having an open border policy will be good for them with hispanics as hispanics along the border in texas continue to flee the democratic party and elect people who want to deal with this issue that they're seeing especially down here Exactly. That's right what I'm from, saying. Yeah, right where we're sitting. Rio Grande right Valley now. all the way up to where we were. And I mean, it's, it seems like a bit of a sea change. Governor Abbott, in our interview yesterday here on the program, he said, guy, there is a movement politically in this state because of this. Yeah. And I just like I feel like they've been, I guess, stuck in this mentality for so long of like, well, if we pander to this community with these policies, they're going to keep automatically voting for us. So we'll pander as hard as possible. So we maximize those votes. The pandering has taken the form and manifested itself with failed policies that are hurting the people in these communities. Right. And the people in the communities are turning against the Democratic Party. It's sort of backfiring in a pretty significant way down here. Well, but their pandering hasn't been based in policy. It's been based in skin color and racial uh, politics. Yeah, so they, made they, up they, terms they, like they, Latinx. They, they, they've pushed this agenda that they think because people from who are coming across the border illegally look the same as maybe some people who have been living in Texas as Americans or as Mexican Americans or whoever for decades or maybe were here before the border moved north of them, as they say, but they act like because they all maybe share the same skin tone that they all agree with each other. Well, they don't. People want, <laughs> want rule of law. They don't want Mexican cartels running their communities. They don't want people coming across crim- criminally every single day across the river, across their own private property, across their farms, as we saw. Uh, they want some semblance of law and order and sovereignty for their country. Well, and the administration has looked at this from a very racialized uh, way, and that's just not how people operate here. It doesn't matter who you are, what your skin color is. They want law and order, and we've seen that change politically well, along and, the border. And there's a lot of Hispanics who are actively engaged in the law and order efforts here in the state of, of Texas. I mean, we were out on the boat today on the river and, you know, half the guys there with us were Latinos. Yep. They're not there saying like, oh, well, I identify with that person swimming across the river because of my skin color. They identify with the citizens of the United States of America because they are citizens of the Correct. United States of America exactly. and they live here with their families and right. they want them to be safe. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's such a miscalculation. And it's like it's also like just offensive on its face, yeah. right? The, the, the racialized mentality. Yeah, that's, that's all they've done. They, that's completely how they've approached this issue. Earlier, I relayed my observations about what we saw on the boat earlier this morning. I want to get some of your thoughts as well. We'll do that as soon as we come back. Katie Pavlich, my colleague at Town Hall and Fox News, here with me in McAllen, Texas. More with Katie after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show from McAllen, Texas today. With me here is my friend and colleague, Katie Pavlich. And Katie, you've mentioned the cartels here once or twice. I talked about this at the top of the show. I would say the night ops in Del Rio a few nights ago was very interesting, and I learned some things. Yesterday, we were you know, at the river up in Del Rio. We saw a few different things, and I learned a lot. 
flying down to McAllen yesterday on that military aircraft was extremely eye-opening. And then being on the boat today was probably the most visceral experience that I've had because you saw just astounding amounts of evidence, not just of the illegal immigration, which is a problem. I did not understand, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this, and I admitted it earlier, I did not understand what an organized business the human trafficking is. Mm -hmm. I mean, these different colored wristbands, almost like you can imagine them almost scanning it, being like, did this person pay the cartel Mm -hmm. what they needed to pay to get safe passage, hopefully, from their perspective, into the United States? Then you get across the border, you know, you're on American soil, and then clip, off comes the wristband, and it just falls to the ground. It's just sitting there for all the authorities to see. It's just like evidence of this problem, and it was... As far as the eye could see, yep. just scattered everywhere. And you were saying just the boon to the drug cartels who are also trafficking cartels, not just you know illicit substances but human beings, uh, the numbers they were telling us, the yep. dollar amounts, staggering. Yeah, you get off the boat and you see this just piles of these wristbands and every single one of them represents a person. Mm-hmm. And we were hearing numbers and I had to ask <laughs> twice, 100 million dollars a week yeah, you're like was that a month i, I thought like, i no, said a, a month it was a week that they are making off of this cartel trafficking operation it is highly organized they said no one's getting across the river unless they're paying someone it's a very similar situation when people are walking across the border uh, whether it's here or in or not here but in del rio as we were seeing with the the fencing and the private ranches um but the thing that's most infuriating about the cartel organization for me is that the Biden administration is essentially closing that last leg on behalf of the drug cartels. And what I mean by that is someone pays a cartel, gets their wristband, gets across the river, they take it off, and they walk to a Border Patrol processing center, or they get picked up and put back in, in, in ICE, takes them to whatever city they want. Because they these folks plane, want to get caught. They put them on a bus, and they finish their journey. So the Biden administration at the federal level oh, we're paying for has, has been we're paying finishing for the trafficking ring, the last leg and of this trafficking process, by picking them up and taking them wherever they want to go. I mean, that's what they're doing. That's the last leg. We saw it today. And they're enabling this $100 million a week process. Well, they're almost partnering with the cartels. Exactly. If you think about it in a certain way, it's like they're closing the loop. Yep. It's a great business efficiency for the cartels because maybe in the past they had to do 100% of the work. Now if you just get them to U.S. Border Patrol, they are now tasked in many, many cases to release those people where they want to go. Saki said a few weeks ago, while mocking the state of Texas, sending busloads of immigrants, uh, illegal immigrants up to D.C., she's like, oh, well, these people are free to travel. Yeah. That was her phrase at the White House. It's like, oh, the U.S. taxpayer, as dictated by the Biden administration, they're closing this loop. Right. So the cartels make $100 million a month, and then the U.S. taxpayers are paying for thousands of illegal immigrants who are coming across every single day to get on a bus and go wherever they want. How many of those wristbands do you think we saw today? 30,000, 20,000, just in one location? Tens of thousands. Yeah. In one spot. I mean, we we were we went out. We saw one location. They, we were told there are dozens of those locations just in the small area we were in. Just countless all countless. along this one part of this river. Well, and then there's the other part where these are these are plastic wristbands, right? So where where's the environmental policy on these plastic wristbands that are lying on the banks of the Rio Grande, which is beautiful, but that's an environmental impact as well. The, those don't deteriorate. They're worse than plastic straws, and they're sitting there, and they're not getting cleaned up. 
They're just trashing the environment while they continue to operate and make their money. Who wins in the hierarchy of leftist ideology? Is it the environmentalists or the open borders people? Because like, they might have a big fight, those two, if, if pitted against each other. I feel like in the past, and this is, now I'm going to say something very cynical. I feel like in the past, the open borders people would win because ultimately yeah. they all understood, at least thought or hoped in their mind, these are people who look this way. We're going to get them here. We're going to make them citizens. They're going to vote for us. Once they start worrying that maybe those people who look that way won't vote for them, I think the Greens start winning <laughs> this horse race again. Yeah. Well, is that is that like crazy cynical as we, of me? As we see with you know leftist ideology, it's it's not about necessarily believing in a certain principle of protecting the environment from plastic. It's what what end justifies the means, right? So yes. it's okay to destroy the environment if you're having open border policies where you're allowing these people to just come in because we don't believe in sovereignty and borders and we want the administration to get a win. Um, but it's another if it would be, you know, other people doing this. Well, or... There's also just like so much human suffering here. Right. Well, yeah. if, if it's people driving vehicles like fossil fuels to, you know, get to their ranching job where they're producing beef for the country, that's a problem for them. But if it's people littering the Rio Grande as a result of illegal immigration, then that's a justified impact on the environment. You know, and we're making some of this right versus left, Democrat versus Republican, whatever. And part of that is just real. Right. The, yeah. the parties have taken sides here. You've got a Democratic administration doing what they're doing, a Republican governor here doing what he's doing. The contrast is stark. I couldn't shake this thought when we were just coming back on the boats to return back to land and go to lunch. I was thinking it's really good to be here to see this, to be able to report on this. I was tweeting photographs of what we saw. That's all good. The people who really need to be on these tours aren't us. Right. I mean, it's helpful for us to deepen our understanding. They need to get some mainstream media people and even left-leaning folks down to this border to see what's happening, not just in sort of the choreographed, we're going to wail because there are kids in these cages over there when a Republican's in charge. Like, that seems like the only interest that they have in coming here sometimes. You've got to put this right in their faces, the cartel money, the, you know, the children's stuff that you see scattered across the bank of the river. Like, that is the type of thing that I think some people who are – maybe casual open border supporters are sort of like instinctively humanitarian. They need to see this stuff right. almost more than we do. Well, and, and to be cynical, I, I think that they know a lot about what's actually going on here. And because they refuse to a, accept it or believe the reality, they don't want to disseminate that. Information I think some people their... do. I think like your rank and file person across the country, just like, you know, you're, you're a left of center Democrat. I don't I think, think those, they know the stakes. No, I, don't think they, I don't think they know the stakes, but I think the people in the newsrooms know a lot about what's actually going on, and they refuse to actually go down and acknowledge that reality because it kind of blows away a lot of the narratives that they continue to push. But you're absolutely right about those kinds of people needing to come down and see it for themselves. Katie Pavlich, my colleague at townhall.com, we're here for a reporting trip. She's also our Fox News colleague. Uh, this was really good, interesting, sometimes depressing stuff, but important. Yep. And great to see you and see you yeah, back in D.C. Safe good. travels. Safe travels. Thanks, Guy. Katie Pavlich on The Guy Benson Show. Final hour coming up. U.S. Senator John Cornyn next on The Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. 
It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. Podcast, free, on demand every day. We, of course, prefer if you can. You would listen live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And this happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and delicious, and we recommend it. If you're 21-plus only, of course, always drink responsibly. The Long Drink. They're expanding massively. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out more right there, including where it's sold near you. You can order online. We encourage you to follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter and Instagram. With us now, as we are broadcasting from McAllen, Texas, embedded with Operation Lone Star, is Texas Senator John Cornyn, a Republican. Senator, it's good to have you back here on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome. Thank you, Guy. Glad you're down in the uh, at ground zero. Yeah, Abby, it has been really quite something to witness uh, firsthand. You know, I've never done this before, and I've learned a lot already. I want to talk about immigration with you in just a moment. But first, whenever I look at a senator's bio before they come on, I'm reminded of certain things. You're on the Finance Committee. You're on the Judiciary Committee. You're also on the Intel Committee. I saw that it just recently, it was either yesterday or earlier today, the foreign minister of Russia, Lavrov, once again was sort of rattling the saber a little bit about the potential deployment of nuclear weapons in the context of the Ukraine war that his government has launched. Whenever I hear the Russians talking about tactical nukes or potentially using nukes, I wonder, is this just bravado? Is this them fear-mongering? Or is there something more here of a threat? I wonder what you assess on that. Well, one thing we know for sure is that no one will win a nuclear war. And that's why you see um, nations like Russia fighting mainly through proxies in uh, places around the world, in Syria. Uh, obviously, there's support for the uh, regime in, in Iran and in North Korea, China, the same thing. And so, um, so I think it's something to be taken seriously. But Lavrov knows that uh, that a nuclear response, even a tactical nuke, would be met with a similar response by NATO, uh, and that is a, a game that no one will win. So I think it is a it's an empty statement, but the Russians do have a doctrine for the use of nuclear weapons, but it usually involves something like regime survival. Uh, That's not the scenario we find ourselves in now. Senator Cornyn, we are here at the border. We're in the Rio Grande Valley. I was out on the boat on the river earlier with a team here, the Marine Tactical Unit from the Department of Public Safety. It is extraordinary seeing the work that they're doing, but also the challenge that they are up against. It is overwhelming. The federal government really unable to do its job because of policies at the very top. Every person, almost to a man and woman, is saying, if Title 42 goes away as expected, it's going to be the worst it has ever been by a long shot. I see a judge has at least thrown a wrench into this timeline in terms of jettisoning Title 42 on schedule, which would be about a month from now. That's the plan, at least, in the Biden administration. I'm not sure if the country can afford to just, you know, wait on a judge to interrupt this thing. The president has a lot of authority, right, as the chief executive. Is there another way to enshrine, whether it's 
Title 42 or something allowing these these quick expulsions for these large groups of people, can that be codified into law? I know Senator McConnell said you guys are going to try to force some votes on that. Is there any prayer of that actually working and getting you know a vote, whether it's on the Senate floor or then on the House floor, let's say it comes out of the uh, the Senate side, are there enough Democrats worried about this that you might actually be able to get something to the president before May 23rd? Well, we'll see, um, because we will be voting on Title 42. Uh, you, you know, the, um, uh, you've seen the, the number of Democrats in, in the Senate who are up for election in 2022, and they're feeling very insecure about all of this, and they should be. You know, the, the, it's, Title 42 is, as you know, the public health title, which has allowed the Border Patrol to expel people on an expedited basis as a public health measure. We always knew that Title 42 was going to go away at some point. But the real problem is the Biden administration has shown no willingness at all uh, to enforce the border against illegal immigration or to change the broken policy on asylum, which will uh, limit and not encourage people coming to the United States and simply melting into the great American landscape. And as I always remind people, uh, it's not just migrants, it's, it's the drugs that took the lives of 100,000 Americans last year, uh, some of which are made in, uh, in China, synthetic opioids, precursors manufactured in Mexico, and come across the border. This is part of a grand business model and criminal enterprise by the cartels, and unfortunately the Biden administration has shown no willingness at all so far uh, to actually secure the border and to protect the country against these drugs. Let me ask you this, because I think just from a government's perspective, it makes sense to try to get some votes you know, on the record and maybe a bill to the president to force the hand here on something, whether it's Title 42, as I said, or something similar to it that could allow these rapid expulsions to continue or else, you know, the problem is going to get far worse than it already is. And it's deep and acute already. We had your colleague in the Senate, Senator Cruz, also of Texas, of course, he was on the show yesterday and we were talking about how when the Democrats had this chance to vote on Title 42 to extend it or to enshrine it back last year when you know, there was, I guess, even more of a pressing public health concern. Every single one of them voted no. They voted no on protecting Title 42 in 2021. Now, some of them seem desperate, almost chomping at the bit to be able to do over that vote and vote for something that they can point to to the voters, even if they know deep down it's not going to actually change anything Is that almost letting some of your Democratic colleagues off the hook to give them an opportunity to cast a vote that in their mind is symbolic and can help them prove their independence when, in fact, they aren't, to my mind at least, interested in actually making policy changes here, in which case this is all just window dressing? Well, I think that's certainly a legitimate question. But given the choice of losing control of the border or giving the Democrats a a cover vote that they could then tout in the 2022 election, I think the voters are smarter than that. And they do, I think, uh, are expressing some remorse at their previous vote. 
But there was never at the time really any risk that Title 42 would go entirely away until now. And so that's why I think you hear a number of Democrats changing their tune, um, especially people like Mark Kelly in Arizona, who's on the ballot, Maggie Hassan up in New Hampshire and others. Um, And, you know, we don't need that many Democrats to override a presidential veto. Um, And so I think there's going to be enormous pressure on the administration, and all they need to all they need to do is to commit to a policy of expedited removal for single adult males, which is what Title 42 has allowed uh, the Border Patrol to use to expel the, that same population using a different tool. But so far, they've shown no indication, no interest really, in doing anything to to secure the border. Senator Cinema from Arizona, the border straight senator, and I, as you know, you and I have discussed it before, have introduced a bill called the Bipartisan Border Solutions Act, together with a Democrat and a Republican in the House. We thought that this would be a lifeline that perhaps the administration would want if they found themselves in a situation like this, but they've shown no interest, which has led me to the conclusion that they really aren't interested in anything other than open borders because they're afraid of their progressive base and what they will do in the next election in, a, in contested primaries. Yeah, I mean, the the chaos is of their making and apparently to their liking to some extent, which is mind-blowing. We did get this perfunctory statement, and we mentioned this in the last hour as well and a little bit yesterday, from Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, that they're mourning the loss of Specialist Evans, who drowned in the Rio Grande while saving two alleged drug smugglers in that process. So they survived. He did not. This is an American soldier uh, who, who risked and then gave up his life because of the chaos that's down there that has been incentivized. And Saki said, well, of course we mourn the loss. But then she basically punted that football right to Texas and said, well, ask them about it. This is their policy. You know, Abbott had them down there. That's basically what she said. What's your reaction to that, Senator? We have about a minute. That's so irresponsible. And everybody knows that the U.S. uh, Excuse me, that the Texas National Guard are doing jobs that should be done by the federal government. This is an international border. And uh, the the fact that she shows so little regard or sympathy or remorse for the loss of a soldier's life, trying to rescue people uh, because of a condition that they've created by the welcome mat they've laid out for illegal immigration into the country is just uh, despicable. Um, I wish President Biden and uh, Vice President Harris would do what you've done guy and yes. then just go to the border and talk to the experts but they're not even interested in being educated on this topic yeah unfortunately i think that's true because the experts could show them what is plain down here and they need to see it senator john cornyn of texas a republican sir always a pleasure talk again soon guy benson show Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. So earlier, we stopped for lunch at this little local joint in like a strip mall here in McAllen. And they're known for their tamales. I think the name of the place was Dahlia's, something like that. Yeah. So we were at a Mexican restaurant last night for dinner, kind of in a shopping mall. It's a local chain down here in Texas. And it was typical stuff, you know, guacamole and queso and fajitas and all of that. It was it was good. I would say similar to 
kind of mainstream Mexican chains that you would have anywhere. Although there were a lot of birthdays. They had the staff that would come and sing Happy Birthday, their very special birthday song that I think is maybe exclusive to the franchise. And then they would transition into the more normal, widely known Happy Birthday song, all in Spanish, a lot of clapping. And I think we were the only table in the dining room that did not at least claim a birthday over the course of the dinner. It was constant. I think for me, if I were working at that type of restaurant in college or afterwards or whatever, I think I'd have maybe four participations in said singing before I either like found a way to stop doing it or had to leave the job. Just, it's a dignity thing. Because you cannot fake enthusiasm that many times. Every single day. For total strangers, half of whom are lying, by the way. It's not their birthday. Have I done that before? Yes, I have. With friends. Will you want to embarrass a friend? You'll pay for the stupid little cake thing that they bring you, and you're going to have the friend be embarrassed by a bunch of people singing who don't want to be singing. So tip well, at least, for these poor people. The food was pretty good. And then today it was a little bit more authentico with the tamales here. It's like a when in Texas situation. We had double barbecue the first day we were here, lunch and dinner. The dinner barbecue was at a gas station, kind of. So there's a gas station attached to a restaurant. It's like, okay. And it was, in fact, very good. And then we did double Mexican because that's like what you should do when you're here. And I talked about this yesterday. Some of you actually sent me messages about whether I went to Whataburger yet. And the answer is no, but on the drive tonight to Austin, we're planning to stop. Clearly, we're having quite a health kick on this trip. It's just health all the way down. I went to the gym for like 20 minutes yesterday. It did not, did not make a dent. I'm going to have to punish myself with a long Peloton tomorrow. But the burger is going to be tonight just to cap off this trip in terms of uh, culinary options. But producer Christine has some questions because producer Christine doesn't like Mexican food, which, again, is one of these very strange things amid many about producer Christine. And look, I mean, first of all, wow, problematic. You don't like Mexican food, Christine? Well, I actually ate some the other day at Dos Caminos, and it it wasn't bad, but it was just like chips and guac and like I think a queso. But no, 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 no. I going – out for Mexican dinner is just not something that I do. See, and I think that you have not had enough experience with Mexican food to actually make the judgment because you swore off margaritas based on one bad margarita many years ago. Then you finally had another one. Quiet Wyatt pressured you into having one, and then you really liked it. I think you need to reboot the whole thing and try again because some of the food is really good. Like, how can you not like a sizzling fajita? Christine. Yeah. Plus, it gets there's so much attention that gathers around you because it's sizzling and they deliver it at the table and everyone looks over. I feel like you'd be really into that. I feel like I would... to sort of be embarrassed, but you'd have a giant smile on your face, hoping that people were filming and taking photos and everything. Yeah, I kind of feel like I would do very well as a waitress at a Mexican restaurant. Mm, why is that? Because I I would totally want to like celebrate everybody's birthday and sing. And oh no! Clap but you could do dance. that at like an like an Applebee's or something. Like I, it's not necessarily just a Mexican restaurant that does that. I think you would be terrible actually at a Mexican restaurant because they'd be like, "What's good here?" You'd be like, "Nothing." 
<laughs> right, that'd be a problem. Or they'd be like, you know, how's the how's the quesadilla? And they'd be like, oh, I've never had it. It's so gross. <laughs> right? I feel like you wouldn't last long at a Mexican restaurant. Yeah, you make a very good point there. Thank you. And you know what? They also don't really have a lot of there. Cookies. I, I just I feel like this is not what you were cut out for. Would you rather be a server at a restaurant or a hostess at a restaurant? One hundred percent hostess. I was a waitress uh, for I think three weeks, and then I got fired. You got fired? Yeah, it was a summer job. And I felt so bad because it was a summer job that I was just holding the place up for a friend who had gone to Europe for the summer. So, so What she, kind of restaurant was it? How did you get fired? Um, I wasn't that great. And I was, you know, not really paying attention much. So oh, would, after would three you weeks, at least Would you write me. down the orders or you're one of the people who's like showing off like i'll remember it all perfectly and when they do it's like okay impressive but when they don't it's like you know this is why god created pens and pats so you could get the details correct uh wow did you talk to my former boss because yes that was one of the many many problems it was a a small italian joint mm. and the and you would butcher the orders i uh, yeah and then i just I, you know, the phone would ring and then I was busy with something else. And then I was, fr- I had a lot of friends that would come in and I would talk to them. So, yeah, it just, it didn't work out. And after three weeks, I was fired. I was supposed to be working for eight. Wow. I mean, I'm not surprised. And this also furthers my conviction that you would not be a very good waitress at a Mexican restaurant because you would have all the aforementioned problems that got you fired. Plus, you allegedly don't even like the cuisine. But as I said, I think you should give it another shot. Otra oportunidad is what we would say, Christine. I can translate during the break for you. We got a break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour from McAllen, Texas. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, we caught up with Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. It's not all border crisis today on the show, even though we're down here in McAllen. Byron and I discussed a number of different topics, including the big news out of Twitter and that apparent acquisition here by Elon Musk. Here's part of our discussion. This was, again, earlier with Byron York. I have to play this MSNBC clip. It's from yesterday, last evening. Ari Melber is the host, and I've seen the clip everywhere. I can scarcely believe that it's real, Byron, but it is. He was sort of envisioning, envisaging a terrible future in which Elon Musk, I guess, becomes super right-wing, And all these terrible things might befall some liberals. I guess he is actually concerned, unlike a lot of them. He seems concerned about what could happen to his fellow progressives if right-wingers like Elon Musk have their way, although I'm I'm not convinced that Musk is a right-winger at all. In many ways, he's not. Um, He's he's actually a man of the left in a lot of ways, but he believes in free speech. But this hypothetical scenario that Melber describes may sound strikingly and astoundingly familiar to a lot of conservatives, cut 20. You own all of Twitter or Facebook or what have you. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to be transparent. You could secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates, all of its nominees. 
or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else. And the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech, philosophically clear, open-minded helper. Byron, that what he just described is actually not hypothetical at all. It's exactly, precisely what has been happening on the right or to the right in some of these cases, on some of these platforms. But it's like Ari Melber and some of his friends don't know that, don't care, can't possibly imagine it. And now they're worried that these terrible things might occur because the terrible things might be occurring, and there's no evidence that they would, but to their side. I mean, I, the lack of self-awareness in that clip to me is breathtaking. I've watched the clip a couple of times, and we should say that Ari Melber says this with a completely straight face, um, as if, as you mentioned, this is not precisely what Twitter is doing from the other side right now as we speak. And, uh, you know, nobody, you know, you listen to the Brian Stelter conversation, listen to the others. They haven't talked about things like the New York Post, which is the biggest single exhibit for uh, Twitter bias ever, meaning the story, the Hunter Biden laptop story that the New York Post published in October of 2020, in the last weeks of the campaign, in which Twitter shut it down. It locked down the New York Post Twitter account until it took down the post for that story and um, refused to let people, would not let people share it, uh, either publicly or privately with each other. It was a clearly partisan political move at a critical well, and in melbourne and melbourne in the clips is like oh and they might do this thing they, they might sort of throttle some of this <laughs> information right, and might. then and then it would change after the election i'm like yes yes this literally just happened byron just described what it was he said oh they might ban candidates from one side well gosh i i almost feel like that has happened is there a prominent politician from one political party uh that has been Banned from Twitter? Just refresh my memory, Byron. I'm I'm scratching I'm scratching my head, but I, there's a <laughs> former president. I'm thinking his name is Trump. I think so. That comes to mind. So the, listen, I don't want these things to happen on a new Twitter. I don't want these things to happen in the opposite direction. Okay, I don't want that to. I don't want this to continue. The, the idea is to stop this. Uh, it's not to, to, to have now Republicans be able to cancel some Democrats. The idea is to stop this, and, and Musk does give some hope uh, that he's inclined to do that. My full interview with Byron York, available at GuyBensonShow.com, along with all of the interviews from today's show. In fact, the entire show, every day, on demand, for free. GuyBensonShow.com. Check out our podcast. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a story about a bridezilla-to-be, even though she's not even engaged yet. A lot of debate over this. Producer Christine wants to weigh in. We'll do that when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday from McAllen, Texas. Back to D.C. tomorrow morning and back on the air from our studios tomorrow. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free of charge every single day on demand. The whole show. GuyBensonShow.com 
So this is a viral post on TikTok, and I wouldn't know because I'm not on TikTok because I prefer not to participate in a Chinese espionage tool, but it's very popular. I understand it. And there is a post that is getting a lot of attention and controversy. The New York Post wrote it up. There is a young woman in England who has preemptively announced her wedding rules for guests. Now, she's not engaged. There is no wedding. But I guess she's planning her wedding already, fantasizing about her wedding, and she already has a baker's dozen bullet points for her would-be guests at the would-be hypothetical wedding one day. And so here's just a few of the 13. Let's listen together. Number one is a rule for all weddings, in my opinion. No one else wears white but the bride. I'm paying so much money. I've invited you to my day. Please have the respect of not wearing white. Like, please, come on. It's common sense. Don't do it. Get out. I think people are going to get angry at this one, but no children unless pre-approved. I love children. I love my friends' babies. I love my family's babies, but I'm not having a distant relative's children that I've not got a connection to or anything. I don't want screaming in my ceremony. I don't want your children running onto the dance floor whilst I'm trying to do my first dance because you're at the bar. I just, no... Number three, maybe a bit of a controversial one, but don't assume an invitation for a plus one. My whole life I've always just been told, unless you're invited, don't ask to go. Um, I personally would not be having people there that I didn't have a clue who they were. I'm sorry, no. Number four, a very big one for me. Do not make an announcement at my wedding, like a pregnancy, an engagement, anything like that. Please, for the love of God, do not take the attention away from me. I'm an attention seeker through and through. I will get you out. We will never be friends again. Number five, no one to use microphone unless pre-approved. And she's talking about speeches. You're not going to get up after 18 drinks and say, actually, I'm going to give a speech. Right? It's going to be the pre-approved list only. So producer Christine has some strong thoughts on this. She brought this to our attention. And, Christine, I'm just going to run through the rest of the Items real quick. We got numbers one through five there from the woman herself. The clip goes on and on, so I'll make it quick. Number six, don't stress me out. Ask my mom, basically, if you have questions. Number seven, no boring people. Number eight, if me or the boyfriend, fiance, now husband, have not met you, you aren't coming. Which is kind of redundant, by the way, from the plus one, like number three. So I think she just sort of maybe wanted to emphasize that point. Number nine, no rudeness to staff or you're out. Number 10, no phones during the ceremony. Number 11, anyone on the dance floor during my first dance will get dragged off. Number 12, guests wear whatever you're comfortable in. And number 13, full use of my photographer after my requested photos are taken. And so your position, Christine, is you endorse all of this. You don't see a problem with this girl and her announcements. In fact, you want to, like amplify them you think she's done a good job here yeah i mean maybe her delivery it, it is all about the delivery guy don't you don't you agree um well so i just on that point i was reading all 13 items and i was like i have a few quibbles but overall i don't know why people are freaking out over this then i heard it and definitely there's something of an edge to it so maybe people are like oh she's being nasty about some of this stuff but overall i don't know this is Fairly tame. I was expecting much worse. When you pitched the story, I was expecting much worse Bridezilla micromanaging craziness here. And this was mostly, I would say, pretty reasonable. Wait a second. Hold on. 
hold on. I wrote to the group that I, when I pitched the story, that I actually agreed with her. Yes, I was expecting insanity. (sighs) And now it's actually pretty sensible. I was like, okay. Yes. I mean, that's that was the point is that I don't see why this went viral. All of these rules are legit. I 100 percent agree with them. Wyden and I were having a conversation about it earlier, and he um, took he he didn't like number seven. He said, "No boring people." Yes, and is I, that because Wyatt has a a complex about being boring? I, I'm not sure. You'd have to ask Wyatt. I didn't say that. Would he be at the wedding during the first dance? Definitely not trying to run onto the dance floor, but he'd be like smoking a pipe and reading the Wall Street Journal in the corner. Well, I, and also number four. Maybe ask the DJ to pipe down a little because he's just really <laughs> trying to focus on the journal. And the only announcements I can imagine him making uh, would to give us a war update. Yeah, war updates. He's like, can I have all of your attention, please? Uh, the Russian offensive in the east has stalled. All right, you may now resume your, your dancing. I, I love it. But I did say to him, because he go, he said, yeah, Wyatt, bring Wyatt in here. I'm here, Christine. I'm listening. So you had said to me, what did you say to me? I think I said, like, what qualifies as a boring person? And you also That's a said, fair question. Yeah. And you also said, would, would you be at my wedding? And I said, of course you were. You would be, because you're my best friend. One of my best friends. So, yes. But honestly, I kind of agree with the no boring people. I did not want people just sitting and staring at me dancing at my wedding. I wanted everybody up. Yeah, but you can't control that, right? Sure there are going to be people. No, there's it's my some wedding. I can control that... anything I wanted to. Not really, though. See, this is where you're getting crazier than this woman now seems to be. I'm getting angry. Like, you're going to invite some people to your wedding because you have to invite them who are not going to be party animals and that's just the reality if you have 150 people at your wedding which is what i had you're not going to be able to control the like festive nature of all 150 of them some of them are going to be like more sort of shy quiet people who don't necessarily love the drinking and dancing and like as long as you're having fun and most people seem to be i think that's what matters most? No, because I don't want to be looking out at my wedding of, you know, I paid $175 for you to sit there with the bus on your face. No, don't come then. What do you think? I'm surprised that you are okay with number 12. Guests get to wear whatever they're comfortable with. I'm not a big, you have to have very strict dress codes at weddings. Sometimes you have to for various reasons. My least favorite one, by the way, just public service announcement, black tie optional. What does that mean? Either make people go all the way in on black tie or not, because then you have this weird mix of some people in like tuxes and other guys in suits. Like, uh, I think you got to give more direction than that. But I think wear whatever you want. No, we gave some vague guidance for our wedding, which was, I believe, wine country chic casual or something ridiculous like that people are like what does that mean i'm like yeah, i don't know you figure it out and people mostly understood the assignment and look great I but did. i think show up in whatever you want is too much freedom for the wedding guests well i mean i'm surprised that you thought i would be against that considering every day you tell me how tacky i am in my decor and my style no, no, actually you dress pretty well i do yeah, I wow. think you dress wow. pretty well. I'm shocked. Yeah. No, no, it's your home decor that's tacky. 
No, no, nothing, nothing is tacky in my life. But, <laughs> See, but I, I'm giving you like I'm giving you at least half a compliment. Yeah, here. I, I, I'm I in think, shock. Um, but the thing is, I would be comfortable because here's the thing: someone could take that very literally. It's like, oh well, I like to lounge around the house in sweatpants. I'm going to show up in like a hoodie to this wedding. I feel like that would be comfortable for a guest, but I don't think that would be appropriate attire. I think number twelve needs some some working here on this woman's list. I'm okay with it. Also, number one happened to me, I just want to say. Someone wore white at your wedding? Yes. And to this day, I still look at my pictures, and I see that person. I'm not going to name names right now. but A woman wore a white dress. A woman wore a white dress to my wedding. See, I think there were some women in white dresses at our wedding, but that's okay because... Neither one of us was in a white dress, obviously. We were both in suits. So that, that was fine. I think if there's a bride in a gown, yeah, you got to be sort of aware of that situation. You need some situational awareness, certainly, of that. One more. What do you think of this one, number four, no big announcements? Like, oh, we're pregnant or whatever. Is that too selfish to do something like that, even if you have, let's say, the rest of your whole family is there because they've all come in for the wedding and you want to tell the people that you love that there's you know, a baby on the way or something? As long as you're not seeking too much of the spotlight, I feel like some extra joy isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think nope. a bad announcement maybe nope. you should avoid. Like, nope. we're getting divorced, right? You don't want that. I don't want any announcements. I didn't want anything at my wedding other than focusing on Christine and Bobby. Okay, this is the cookie show. Do you know how much money a wedding? Oh, you do. You do. Um, I do know. Yeah. (laughs) And you were at my wedding. Imagine if Bobby and I grabbed the microphone and just went up there and said, well, to a crowd of people we didn't know, (laughs) we're having a baby. No. There's At my wedding, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I was using you as an example, but. I think Bobby would physically prevent you from doing that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> By the way, and I did tell Wyatt this, and I just want to put it out there, and you can agree. I am a phenomenal, phenomenal wedding guest. I'm going to dance the whole time. I'm going to rave about your food. I'm certainly going to drink as much as an open bar, as much as you paid. And I'm just I'm just going to be a happy person. Worth. Yeah. I, I <laughs> well, love now wedding. Now I'm worried. I'm suddenly worried that all of the raving that you've done about our wedding is just you being polite and living up to this brand. <laughs> you know, your wedding your wedding was just stunning. I mean, you can't that that wedding was just unbelievable. That goes like high up. But um no, I'm really good wedding okay. guest. So if anybody needs, you know, wedding fillers, <laughs> Bobby and well, what if no cuz no plus ones. No plus ones. Yeah, that's true. Like you're saying you're making the case that you would be a really good plus one. This woman might love you at the wedding, but she doesn't know you. You're out. Do you accept that? Well, the thing is, like, if you're listening to us and you have been for a while, we're kind of like family to you. I'll be your best friend. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, people can now tweet at you if they want that. You can just get overwhelmed with wedding invitations. It's at CookiesJar1988 on Twitter. So if that's what you want, feel free. I was invited to a stranger's wedding, as you recall. Yes. Last year, and I went in the middle of COVID. But that was a special circumstance. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, which is fine, Go to my Twitter, at Guy P. Benson. Look at the pinned tweet at the very top and feast your eyes upon the dozens of tweets that follow. I promise you it's worth it. But I think that's just a very rare exception to the overall rule 
And once again, I will say most of these rules, reasonable. My only piece of advice to this young woman is maybe find a husband before you go about announcing all of this stuff. That's just me. No, I actually disagree with you on that. We have been uh, – a lot of women <laughs> have been – laying down the law. We've been thinking years about in our wedding for years. So I like I, – I respect this girl, and I, I she knows what she wants, and she knows where she's going. Okay, well, maybe you have a new bestie over in the U.K. This thing's been viewed millions of times. Thank you, Christine, for bringing this to our attention. Back from the border tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show from D.C., if all goes according to plan. Fingers crossed. We will see you then. Talk to you same time, same place for the Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.